Greetings, you're listening to Cantus Firmus at the Movies. Some time back I had started a Patreon, and part of the benefits that subscribers got was a Patreon-exclusive podcast. Uh, that Patreon of mine has been closed for some time now, but there was some, what I thought, were really cool content left over that only a few people got to hear. So I'm repackaging some of the highlights from my regular podcast for you to listen to. This includes two At The Movies Film Festival episodes that gather my theological and philosophical analyses of films centered around a certain theme. The theme for this episode is Space is the Place, and includes discussion of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, The Thing from Another World, Mars Attacks, Star Wars Episode Seven: The Last Jedi, and 2001 A Space Odyssey. And now let's discuss Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Uh, This film was written by uh, Nicholas Meyer, who uh, directed Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Denny Martin Flynn. And it was based on uh, this idea uh, from Leonard Nimoy, who plays uh, Spock. Um, you know, what if the wall, the Berlin Wall, came down in space? So it's, you know, it's a Cold War movie that plays out between the Federation and the Klingons. Um, the title, The Undiscovered Country, uh, of course, comes from Hamlet, although in Hamlet it's death. Uh, but in this film, it's actually just this, uh, you know, worldview-shattering future where former enemies seek peace. Um, but, you know, an ultimately, you know, different kind of world, an undiscovered country, so to speak. Uh, and there's a lot of Shakespeare quoting in this film, uh, particularly um, uh, there's, there's kind of a, you know, a little joke about um, where the Klingons say something about Shakespeare and how, oh, you haven't heard him until you've heard him in the original Klingon. Uh, and then they seek to uh, uh, quote to be or not to be, which was a problem um, since the Klingon language that had been created uh, for these movie series did not have a verb or a word meaning to be. It also lacks infinitives. So, you know, an infinitive uh, would be like to be, to walk, to go, etc. So it's it's a verb that isn't limited uh, based on um, um, whether it's singular or plural or first, second, third person, whatever. So, you know, to walk. It doesn't say he walks, she walks, they walk. It's just to walk. So, um, in order to get around this, they created uh, this phrase instead uh, that in Klingon means it endures or it doesn't endure, which is pretty interesting. Uh, now, so the, the basic plot idea here, and of course I'm going to spoil it because I, I do want to talk about the, the overall themes here, um, is that the Klingon moon Praxis is destroyed from overmining uh, and uh, you know uh, poor environmental and safety procedures. But, you know, the Klingons are warriors. What do you expect them to do? Follow the EPA guidelines? Come on. So um, so there's a side effect that their atmosphere is so polluted uh, that they can't survive another 50 years. And this problem is, uh, you know, even more compounded by the fact that uh, all of their money has been spent toward, uh, you know, military endeavors. And they don't really have a budget uh, uh, or any sort of procedures in place for dealing with this problem. So the Federation hopes to extend an olive branch to the Klingon Empire uh, to seek peace by sending the Enterprise, uh, who they've uh, recommissioned with Captain Kirk, to accompany them to a diplomatic meeting where they're hoping to sort of uh, make some peace plans with the Federation that will save the Klingons. 
Now, forces in both the Federation and the Klingon Empire, uh, which are hostile to peace, work together to sabotage the meeting by framing Kirk and McCoy to make it look like they have attacked the Klingon ship. Um, and, you know, Kirk is pretty interesting in this film because he... I think they add some shades to his character, uh, developing a, a little bit more, uh, because he is basically a racist <laughs> in this film. Um, you know, he talking about the Klingons, he doesn't want to be on this diplomatic mission. You know, he, he says they're animals, let them die. Uh, you know, these are these, you know, warrior people that, you know, could never be trusted and, and he always had to, uh, you know, fight against or, you know, stop in some way. And he just thinks a universe or a galaxy where the Klingons don't exist is a better option, maybe. Um, and, and more than that, though, Kirk is afraid of a future with no neutral zone, as he says it. So this neutral zone is this idea that you have an area that the Klingons don't go into, the Federation doesn't go into. They, you avoid the neutral zone. Uh, that's the sort of space between uh, the Klingon and Federation space. And, you know, Kirk holds on to this idea. He, he doesn't want a future with no neutral zone, much like a lot of us don't want a you know world without borders or walls that can separate us from our perceived enemies. Um, and in fact, what's interesting is, in a lot of cases, uh, especially it, what's interesting is, in this film, and indeed in, in life, we are often more attached to the idea of a wall or a border or a neutral zone uh, than we are of our hatred for the enemy that we're supposed to be keeping out with that wall. You know, we, we love the wall more than we hate the enemy in a lot of cases. So, uh, you know, an example would be, and uh, there's an interesting quote here, so I'm going I'm to mention this article. Uh, it was a Vice article, um, When Malcolm X Met the Nazis, written by Sam McFeeters, and it gives an account of a June 1961 rally of the Nation of Islam, better known as the Black Muslims, uh, which was attended by 10 members of the American Nazi Party. The party's founder, George Lincoln Rockwell, was enthusiastic about the Nation of Islam's segregationist platform. Quote, division of the races was another mutual bugbear. Malcolm X's speech that night was titled Separation or Death. Inside the arena, Rockwell told reporters, I am fully in concert with their program and I have the highest respect for Elijah Muhammad. The question of where to send America's blacks, the Nation of Islam wanted a chunk of the U.S., while the American Nazi Party wanted a full deportation to Africa, was, he said, his only quarrel with the Muslims, end quote. Six months earlier, the Nation of Islam leader Elijah Muhammad had sent Malcolm X to meet with the Klan. So, you know, what's fascinating here is, who's the enemy in this situation? Uh, if you're the Nation of Islam, is the enemy the Klan? or if you're the Klan or the American Nazi Party, is the enemy the Nation of Islam? No, the enemy are those who are seeking reconciliation, those who are wanting to tear down the walls. And your friend is the, the, the supposed enemy on the other side who also wants to keep the walls up. When your identity is wrapped up in the notion of separation, you have more in common with your enemy than you do, than you do with those who are seeking reconciliation. As we discussed earlier, uh, when we were reading Ignatius, a similar issue emerged in the early church between Jews and Gentiles. It's important to note that Paul didn't encourage Jews and Gentiles to divide and go to different churches. He also didn't encourage one group to be more like the other. Instead, he asked that the real differences that separated Jews and Gentiles not be subsumed under a shared culture or to be allowed to create two different Christianities, but for the two to become one under the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Paul looked forward to an undiscovered country, um, a future resurrection where race and culture did not divide people. And he exhorted followers of Christ to live in that country now, even if the world refuses to. Uh, and, you know, that's something uh, that, I, that I found in Star Trek VI that, um, um, you know, is, is really what I love about sci-fi and, and uh, you know, comic books and just these sort of fantasy-type genres uh, and mediums is because they can tell these stories with these big characters that kind of exaggerate these issues to some extent. Uh, but by doing so, they make the issues stand out in clear light. You know, a film about the Cold War might not have been as interesting, and it might not have been as powerful. Uh, but you make this, uh, you, you put the Cold War in space, <laughs> and you put in the, the intrigue, and you allow it to be Klingons in the Federation, and you put these racist words in, in, in a character that you know uh, you love, or at least is supposed to be the hero, like a Kirk, and you're able to communicate something that you might not be able to communicate so well in just a you know simple Cold War story. Uh, so you know, I uh, I love this film for that reason. And now let's talk about the 1951 film, The Thing from Another World. <laughs> Directed by Christian Nyby for Howard Hawks' production company, uh, though suspected to have been directed primarily by Hawks, uh, sort of like the Steven Spielberg-Toby Hooper debate regarding Poltergeist, The Thing from Another World was a science fiction horror film, or is a science fiction horror film, about a humanoid alien terrorizing a U.S. Air Force crew along with an embedded reporter and a scientist at a North Pole scientific outpost. Now, Howard Hawks um, may be familiar with. He's responsible for films like His Girl Friday, The Big Sleep, and Bringing Up Baby. This is kind of interesting for him because it is sort of a departure in genre, more of a sci-fi horror. The alien, or the thing, uh, interestingly enough, is discovered to be more akin to plant life than animal life, and when it begins attacking humans, they struggle to figure out how to destroy it. Um, you know, you shoot it, it goes through, it doesn't really matter that much, you know, <laughs> it still manages to be okay, so they're uh, trying to figure out what to do here. And, and what's interesting is, you know, in alien films, there's always one of two approaches that they can take. Um, one is uh, the approach where the alien is good and we can learn from it. Uh, the other one is that the alien is evil and wants to destroy us. Sometimes alien's good, but, you know, certain people don't trust it. Um, sometimes it wants to destroy us, and other people think we should trust it, and that's kind of what's happening in this one. And, and ultimately, you have these two different approaches in the film. Uh, you, know, you have these military folks, and their approach is more conservative. Um, um, you know, what is this thing? It's different. I don't know if we can trust it. And, you know, they end up being right. Uh, and the scientist approach, I guess, is in a way more liberal. Uh, it's more open to something that's different, that's, that's outside and ultimately that that does mirror sort of what we see um politically you know when you look at what a conservative is versus what a liberal is a conservative is more close to what's different new or foreign on the basis that it could be dangerous uh, and indeed sometimes it is whereas the liberal is hopeful about what can be gained from welcoming in the stranger and dismissive about the possibility of danger so the military folks, when referring to the scientist, describe him as uh, like a kid with a new toy, only this toy is liable to bite him. <laughs> Whereas the scientist refers to military folks as uh, talking like frightened schoolchildren. 
So there's this kind of idea that, you know, I think liberals view conservatives as sort of, you know, paranoid and, uh, you know, always, you know, overly defensive and, you know, uh, you know, childish in their approach, um, where, you know, the conservative views himself as the realist. There's a real danger here and, uh, you know, you're being far too open to it. It's reminiscent of a poem that uh, Donald Trump read on the campaign trail, uh, as well as at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference this year, uh, a poem called The Snake, about a woman who takes in a snake from the cold, uh, and it bites her, and she is, you know, like, upset, you know, why did you bite me, whatever, and <laughs> the snake responds, oh, shut up, silly woman, said the reptile with a grin, you knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. What's interesting there is that for Trump, it's obvious, uh, you know, that this foreign element that's coming in is a threat. We know damn well that it's a threat. Um, <laughs> it's, it's as simple as that. So that, you know, that would be an example of a more uh, extreme uh, kind of conservatism uh, caution when it comes to the outsider. So the scientist, you know, uh, near the end of the movie tries to make friends with the creature, uh, communicate with it, uh, and... Um, it attacks him. <laughs> so then that opens the door for the military approach to, to come in. Now, this film actually was, was, was remade uh, by John Carpenter. And in his version of the, which is just called The Thing, and stars uh, Kurt Russell, Keith David, and others, it's basically a paranoia tale. Uh, it's, it's like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, so in Carpenter's approach, as well as the approach of the original novella that the, book, the movie is based on, um, the monster is a shapeshifter. And so, you know, he could be anybody in the camp, you know? So that leads to more feelings of paranoia. Um, they're focused more on the possibility of the enemy, the unknown enemy within. And, you know, this approach is maybe um, sometimes uh, more correct, more balanced, because it acknowledges that danger doesn't always look like the other, uh, which is basically the conceit of this more kind of military-minded 1951 film. Uh, one more note uh, I'll just bring out because it's kind of interesting is that uh, there's this pretty cool scene where they're using this Geiger counter to track the movements of the creature, uh, of the thing, to see how close it is. And it really reminded me of that scene in Alien where they're tracking the, uh, the xenomorph creature. And, you know, it starts beep, 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 getting louder and louder and louder as it gets closer. And where is it? And it's above them or whatever, you know. So uh, it's kind of interesting because it brings in that suspense feeling that is later used in Alien, using this uh, tool, this piece of technology to track the movements of the thing. So, you know, what's interesting, you know, about this film is it does present you with two different approaches. And neither one of them is, I guess, necessarily wrong in and of itself. Um, you know, there, there can be, um, you know, danger from without. But there can also be, as the scientist argues, a great capacity for learning new things, of... Uh, advancing civilization. At the extreme end, conservatism, I think, turns into a form of racism. You're so concerned about something that's outside that you tend to dehumanize it, um, or someone who's outside, you tend to dehumanize them. I think the liberal side, on its extreme, winds up with this kind of unrealism. It's not willing to acknowledge dangers where they actually might exist for fear of being offensive or not politically correct, what have you. And, you know, at the end of the day, we need both sides, you know, 
perhaps not. Perhaps we don't need the what we find on the extremes, but we need um, you know to rally kind of around the middle a little bit um, to you know be somewhat cautious about uh, making changes and moving forward. Um, you know, the conservative ultimately is about trying to um, make changes if they are made very slowly. Um, whereas the liberal is always looking for progress. The conservative, I think, tends to be afraid of progress because he says, well, what are we progressing into? The liberal, um, you know, loves progress and sort of views where we are now as not satisfactory. And so that's a debate that we constantly have at the voting booths, um, as well as, um, you know, throughout history and political writing, uh, Payne, Burke, guys like that. And now let's talk about the 1996 film Mars Attacks. Mars Attacks was directed by Tim Burton and has, I mean, really an incredible cast. Uh, Jack Nicholson, Glenn Close, Annette Bening, Pierce Brosnan, Danny DeVito, Martin Short, Sarah Jessica Parker, Michael J. Fox, Tom Jones for some reason, uh, Natalie Portman, Jack Black, Christina Applegate, and some of my favorites uh, from, you know, kind of maybe older Hollywood, um, Rod Steiger, Pam Greer, Jim Brown, and somewhat ironically, although I have to admit I like him, Joe Don Baker. Um, the Like I said, Tom Jones is in this for, for some strange reason, uh, and I guess it's supposed to be funny. It doesn't quite work, but, but basically the idea here is uh, it came out the same year as a, another uh, alien invasion film, Independence Day. And, uh, you know, follows a similar uh, train of thought. Uh, and the aliens are coming in, and they want to destroy us. And, you know, uh, the United States in particular is kind of the focus and all the crazy stuff going on during the invasion. Uh, this is, uh, you know, more, um, uh, I don't know, silly, I guess, than Independence Day, at least uh, more intentionally silly. Um, <laughs> the aliens are, are supposed to be sort of humorous. The humor doesn't entirely work, uh, but it's kind of a fun movie. Um I'd probably watch it before I'd watch Independence Day again. But that cast is, is, is I mean, pretty amazing. Every time somebody comes up, I'm like, oh, wow, wow, look at him. Uh, so the basic idea is you have, um, you know, the Martians are coming to Earth. They've communicated some sort of message that they, they're interested in peace. Uh, you have different factions in the White House. Um, the, uh, there's a general, I believe, played by Rod Steiger who, um, you know, wants to nuke them. Uh, because he sees them as dangerous, which his impulse tends to actually ends up being correct, <laughs> even though he's presented as you know somewhat of this kind of uh, you know crazy hawk a little bit. Um, and then you have this other faction, uh, kind of headed up by Pierce Brosnan, that believes that um, you know because these creatures are technologically advanced, because the Martians are technologically advanced, that necessarily means that they're peaceful and good. And that's kind of where I wanted to focus in on this, because it's an interesting idea that I think we, we sometimes tend to have. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to, you know, argue too strongly in favor of a hawkish view or anything here, um, you know, as a Christian pacifist in particular. Uh, but at the same time, we, we can't put a rosier view on uh, reality uh, than we, you know, than is actually warranted. And so this idea that being technologically advanced makes you peaceful and good um, is this kind of idea that we've gotten from modernism, uh, which you might call uh, technological or scientific utopianism. And uh, we saw it a lot in like the last century in uh, science fiction, uh, you know, books and films, and uh, you sometimes hear it as well a lot, uh, a lot, uh, 
from a lot of atheistic thinkers that if only we could get rid of religion and, and just you know appeal to reason and science then the world would be a better and more wonderful place um it's i'd say it's probably rooted more in uh the enlightenment period uh 18th century uh, and you know around there around thereabouts and this idea that the deliverances of reason would create a better, more prosperous society, uh, that reason alone was capable of making an ideal world, it had some positive impacts. Scientific advancement certainly flourished in the Enlightenment. It was also you know, tended to be um, hostile toward religion, although there was a sort of a Christian Enlightenment movement as well. And uh, the other uh, downside <laughs> is that... Um, it produced, at the end of that century, the bloody and intolerant French Revolution. Karl Marx, in the next century, would, would argue that advances in science undermined authoritarians and the influence of religion. And, uh, you know, the greatest Marxist state, the Soviet Union, they certainly valued science and undermined religion, uh, but uh, let it never be said that they were anti-authoritarian or believers in the value of human life, because uh, tremendous um, waste of life on behalf of the Soviet Union toward their own citizens. In more recent times, um, an inventor and uh, I guess sort of a philosopher, Ray Kurzweil, uh, has heralded um, this future singularity where machine and human intelligence will be merged. The potential results of this singularity, let alone you know even the possibility of it, are, are pretty unclear, but, but he's optimistic. You know, for, for a, a possible alternative uh, viewpoint, maybe you know, watch Terminator 2 or something. But really what this is, is, is there is not any evidence that simply using reason will provide more freedom, more goodness. And here's, the, here's why. Because reason and, and science, they're not philosophical outlooks, they're methods. You know, Neil Postman wrote in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, it hardly befits a people who stand ready to blow up the planet to praise themselves too vigorously for having found the true way to talk about nature. Reason, unchecked by basic moral presuppositions, only provides us with more clever ways to destroy ourselves. So, you know, so much for technological utopianism. All right, now let's turn to Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi uh, came out 2017, which would be last year if you're listening uh, around the time I'm recording this. The director was Ryan Johnson. Uh, he'd also directed the film uh, Looper in 2012, which was fairly successful. And he also made an indie film that was kind of a neo-noir um, in 2005 called Brick that was actually quite good. This particular uh, Star Wars film was fairly controversial. A lot of the uh, uh, folks who liked the older films, and in particular The Force Awakens, which um, I think you know was basically just kind of a repackaged um, A New Hope, <laughs> um, they didn't like differences in this film, uh, changes that were made particularly to the character of Luke. So in this film, Luke is hiding out. He has placed himself in exile on this planet where he hopes to die. He's cut himself off from the Force. He no longer wants to be a Jedi or to train others to be so. So this is a very different Luke than we see in the original trilogy. And here's why. So as you watch these films, you'll notice um, an interesting parallel. The way the Force is spoken of mirrors a, a, an Asian uh, philosophy referred to as Taoism. And in particular, this image of the yin and yang. 
And the light and dark sides of the Force are, are like the yin and yang. They'll always end up being in balance because really that's what that's what Taoism is about. That's what the yin-yang is about, seeking balance. Luke thinks that if he can stop the Jedi from existing, he'll also stop the Sith from existing, thus preventing the bloodshed and terror that always emerges from the conflict of dark and light and that we see repeatedly through all these films. Luke has fallen into an apathetic response. He's unwilling to fight the dark side because he believes doing so will only perpetuate it. This version of Luke was you know, pretty controversial for longtime Star Wars fans, as I mentioned. It didn't feel like the Luke from the original trilogy. He changed in ways that they weren't happy with. He was this kind of isolated, grumpy curmudgeon who no longer wanted to have anything to do with the Force. But the problem is that Luke is right. If these Taoistic dualities frame up the world, um, you know, good and evil always existing in, in balance with each other, then the existence of the light side of the Force, the, the Yang, if you will, will always provoke a dark side response, or the Yin. It's only if goodness is primary, if it's truly good and worth pursuing for its own sake, that one should seek to prevent evil. On Christianity, for example, good and evil are not equal forces. Good is what God is. Evil seeks to subvert this more primary goodness with a parasitic badness that fails to meet the standard. Evil comes later. It doesn't have to exist. Good does not need evil to be good. But in the world of Star Wars, who can say what's truly good and bad? They're, they're kind of equal. One isn't primary over the other. One isn't pre-existent over the other. They need each other to exist. That's the real primary truth. Balance between good and bad is the good, not good itself. To say otherwise is to deal in absolutes, and according to Obi-Wan, only Sith deal in absolutes. Well, and also Obi-Wan, since that's an absolute statement, but that's a discussion for another time. And now let's discuss 2001, A Space Odyssey. People forget how huge the New Age craze was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We'd begun to abandon the idea of Jesus as our savior as a society, but not of a cosmic redeemer in general. We were starting to look forward to a new world inspired by the great wisdom of an advanced race of aliens which had yet to show itself to us. There were even UFO religions like the uh, Raelians, I think it's how it's pronounced, R-A-E-L-I-A-N-S, who reinterpreted biblical passages about Noah's Ark to refer to a spaceship sent by a race of advanced aliens known as the Elohim to save us. The Heaven's Gate cult famously committed mass suicides so that their spirits would be picked up by a spaceship they believe was hiding behind Halley's Comet. The New Age jazz musician Sun Ra constructed his own mythology, seemingly influenced by the Nation of Islam's own ideas on the subject, of a spaceship that would rescue black people before destroying an earth filled only with white people. In 2001, A Space Odyssey, a 1968 film made by Stanley Kubrick, humanity's evolution is directed by large black monoliths sent by an alien race, first to teach us to use tools and weapons, and finally to advance us into the great star child, something like Nietzsche's idea of the Superman, but more cosmic in scope. That, uh, that star child uh, language, um, I don't think is used in the film, but it is something that is used by Arthur C. Clarke, who um, uh, wrote the book and um, co-wrote the film. Uh, and it's also picked up by George Clinton um, in um, the Mothership Connection album from Parliament. The film is really about the religions that mankind creates when he's abandoned the religion of his father. 
cosmic evolution replaces Christianity as a respectable alternative to our hope for a better future rooted in scientific advancement. You know, better living through aliens or something like that. But the film also has a cautionary tale of humanity barely avoiding a destructive union with artificial intelligence, which today's transhumanists refer to as the hoped-for singularity. Should we hope in technology? The same technology which gave us guns and the atomic bomb and placed us on the edge of no tomorrows? If not technology, what about a hope in finite saviors, like these alien beings? Beings a lot like us, but maybe just a little bit smarter. Let us not forget that it's people like these that made the atomic bomb to begin with. No, our hope should only be in Christ. Paganism may give us trippy movies, but it can't give us a future in God's universe as his children united to the cosmic God-man Jesus. We can't go up unless God first comes down. Thank you for listening. See you in a couple weeks.